What would happen if aliens made contact? Today, one prominent scientist says aliens may have actually already visited our solar system. My name is Avi Loeb and I'm a professor of science at Harvard University and the director of two centers there. Avi Loeb is a theoretical physicist who works on astrophysics and cosmology. And for the past few years, he's argued that an alien artifact passed by Earth in 2017. As you can imagine, a Harvard professor going on the record that aliens exist caused quite a stir. It's a claim that's put him very much at odds with the mainstream science. People tend to have an, an opinion ahead of time, and I think that's uh, dangerous because we just don't know who lives in our neighborhood and what their objectives are. Loeb's latest book is titled Extraterrestrial, The First Signs of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Other scientists have questioned his research, calling it irresponsible and even flimsy. But Loeb dismisses the skepticism as resistance to the real possibility of aliens. Because it has huge implication to ourselves, the way we view ourselves. There is some something really fundamental about finding others that would say something about us would say something about our future. So the stakes are really high. It will have a huge impact on society. But that's exactly the reason why I think we should invest funds in finding the answer. From the University of Chicago Podcast Network, this is Big Brains, a show about the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. Today on the show, the mystery and controversy around Avi Loeb's theories on aliens. I'm your host, Paul Rand. Avi Loeb grew up in a small farming village outside Tel Aviv. As a kid, he would work on the farm during the day and then drive a tractor to the hills of the village where he would sit and read philosophy books, pondering life's big questions. That eventually led him to academia. And today, he says he sees his work as a continuation of that early curiosity. Fundamentally, I'm still a kid that was born on a farm and uh, my guiding principles uh, were shaped in my childhood. And I really respect nature more than people. And I regard science as a dialogue with nature. The second principle that I borrowed from my childhood was the love of uh, philosophy. To me, the bigger picture, you know, is extremely important. And when you are in a town and the first question to ask is who lives in my neighborhood? Right? And that is the fundamental question that my book addresses. Are we alone or do we have, you know, smarter kids on the block? When he was 24, Loeb received a PhD in plasma physics at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He went from there to the Institute for Advanced Science at Princeton, where he started his work in theoretical astrophysics. And in 1993, he became a professor in the astronomy department at Harvard. He was chair of that department until last year. Today, Loeb says he thinks academia encourages scientists to play it way too safe. The reward system in academia rewards people for the, the past accomplishments, not so much for innovation into the future and taking risks. And that's a problem because what you want is to fund innovators that every now and then make mistakes, you know, you know, that's part of a learning experience. Learning about the, our environment, getting information about who might be out there is in our interest. And it's something that humanity needs to 
invest in. I was asked by a lot of reporters whether it's good for society to know who is in our neighborhood or not. Maybe it will cause turmoil if we figure out that we are not the smartest kid on the block. My point is scientific knowledge is always good. Information is always helpful when you plan what to do next. And, you know, it's a learning experience. And we should be humble enough to pay attention to the facts, to the evidence, and try to interpret that evidence rather than make bold statements, you know, saying, you know, it's never aliens. Most of Loeb's colleagues say that it's important in science not to jump to conclusions. But in Loeb's view, history is full of scientists who were wrong about the fundamental aspects of our world because they were too conservative. In 1952, Otto Struve argued that, you know, we could detect a planet as large as Jupiter uh, in close proximity to a star like the sun because it will tag the star back and forth and uh, we could detect that motion of the star. It could also pass in front of the star and reduce a little bit the, the brightness of the star and we can detect that as well. For four decades, time allocation committees on major telescopes refused to give time to search for such hot Jupiters. And only in 1995, the first such system was discovered by chance, and it opened the whole new field of exoplanets, planets around other stars. And th those two people that discovered it got the Nobel Prize in physics a few years ago. Now you say, okay, well, you know, that's not a big deal. Science eventually arrived to detecting those systems, even though initially there was resistance. Well, first of all, it was four decades of delay. You know, that's an unhealthy situation. You want science to progress as fast as possible. And we could have learned much more in the, during those decades. Some 70 years later, Loeb is at the center of his own scientific dust-up. And it all started in 2017. In October 2017, the first object that came from outside the solar system was discovered near the sun. A blip of light moving so fast it could only have come from another star system. We call it interstellar, meaning that it came from the space between stars. And it, it was discovered by the Pan-STARRS telescope in Maui, Hawaii, and given the name Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language. One of the first things that scientists noticed was that Oumuamua appeared to be pushed by non-gravitational force. And at first, astronomers thought, oh, it's probably a, a comet, yes, or an asteroid of the type that we have seen from within the solar system. The only problem is it didn't have a cometary tail. There was no gas or dust surrounding it visually. Cometary tails are the usual signatures of non-gravitational acceleration caused by the pressure of solar radiation or gas or particles that's driven out as an object warms up as it gets closer to the sun. But then the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around it and couldn't detect any carbon-based molecules, even at a very low level. And so it was definitely not a comet. Then it showed qualities that make it very different from an asteroid. First of all, as it was tumbling, it was reflecting sunlight and its brightness changed by a factor of 10, meaning that projected on the sky, it, it was at least 10 times longer than it is wide. And just imagine a piece of paper tumbling on the sky, you know, a factor of 10 change in the area that is projected is, is quite large. The best model for explaining the variation in the light was that of a flat object, a pancake-shaped object. It was also, it had a high reflectance at the high end of objects that we usually see. 
and then uh, it also exhibited an excess push away from the sun. And the only way I could explain it is as if this push comes from reflecting sunlight because it varied inversely with distance squared uh, in a smooth fashion. For that to be effective, you needed the object to be very thin, sort of like a sail, hmm. and the nature doesn't make sails. <laughs> and that's what led me to suggest that it perhaps is a product of an artificial production line, the way we produce light sails that are pushed by light. And in September 2020, there was another object discovered by the same telescope that was given the astronomical name 2020 SO, and it also exhibited a push by reflecting sunlight and no cometary tail around it. Turns out that this object came from Earth. <laughs> it was a rocket booster that was ejected into space in 1966 as part of the Lunar Lander Surveyor 2 mission. And it had very thin walls, and that's why it had a lot of area for its weight, and it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. So we know that we produced this object ourselves. We just don't know who produced Oumuamua. Since making the initial observations, many astronomers say that Oumuamua seems strange, mostly because we have so little information about it. It zipped by so quickly that the images we have are very low quality, and it's now long gone, more than 2 billion miles away, too far to catch sight of again. Still, even with the little data that we do have, there are many competing theories and models of what Oumuamua could be. Loeb's argument is that this is just as plausible as any other, and we should grapple with that possibility. We have a wager, similar to the wager that Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, uh, posed. Uh, he talked about God and said, you know, there are two possibilities. He was a mathematician, just thinking rationally about it. He said, either God exists or God doesn't exist. And if God exists, the implications are huge. Therefore, we have to consider that possibility. And I do the same for Oumuamua being a technological relic. I say, if it is a technological relic, the implications are huge for society. At this point, are you 100% certain that Oumuamua was extraterrestrial or what you're 100% is that we need to question it? Well, uh, what I'm sure about is that it's an object of a nature that we've never seen before because I just look at the interpretations that were put on the table. So aside from my interpretation that it may be uh, an artificial object, uh, there were three other interpretations that uh, associated it with a natural origin. And all three of them discussed an object of a type that we've never seen before. One was uh, a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen mm -hmm. that... Uh, behaves like a comet, but we can't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. The problem with that is that a chunk of frozen hydrogen would get evaporated very quickly along the journey and wouldn't survive the trip. We showed that in a scientific paper that I published. And then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a dust bunny, you know, a collection of dust particles bound together like dust bunnies you find at home. And it has to be about a hundred times less dense than air in order for the reflection of sunlight to push it the way we saw. But the problem with that is that as it gets close enough to the sun, like Oumuamua was, it will get heated by hundreds of degrees and it will just not have the material strength 
to maintain its integrity. The third suggestion was maybe it's a fragment, a shrapnel from an object that was disrupted by passing close to a star. And the problem of that, with that is that the tidal force of a star will create elongated objects, not pancake-shaped objects like Oumuamua was. So each of these three possibilities that were entertained in the scientific literature suffer from major flaws. And what I say is all of them agree that it's something that we have never seen before. And so if we collect more evidence on objects of the same class, then we will learn something new. You know, even if there are natural factories making them, you know, these are factories we've never imagined before. So let's just find out. Let's pay respect to the evidence rather than say, oh, it's always rocks, it's never aliens. A new study from Arizona State University suggests that a muamua is a chunk of nitrogen ice knocked from a Pluto-like object that was circling a distant star some half billion years ago. According to that model, an impact would have sent it tumbling out of its own star system toward ours, melting along the way to a flat sliver, like a bar of soap in the shower. When people try to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua from a natural origin, I'm very happy to see that because perhaps one of them would look more appealing than my suggestion. And then, of course, you know, that... I would change my opinion. Many argue that conclusions grounded in natural explanations should be given precedence. As a saying by you Chicago alum Carl Sagan goes, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Moreover, I would argue, extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. So Loeb wants to flip the script. He says his hypothesis should be taken just as seriously or because of the massive implications even more seriously. But also the most likely situation, you know, if you view it as a technological relic, is that it's billions of years old because most of the stars were born billions of years before the sun. And so if they had a technological civilization like ours, they already sent out their Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizon missions, and a billion years later, these probes are not functional anymore. So they are just like plastic bottles on a beach that, that are punctured, you know, they, they suffered damage, they're not really working, but they're out there and they keep accumulating. And we can learn about other civilizations by doing space archaeology. You know, it's a very different approach than looking for radio signals, because a radio signal is just like having a conversation on the phone, and you need the counterpart to be alive. We can't have a, red, a, a, a phone conversation with the Mayans. The Mayan culture is gone by now. And the way we can find about it is through archaeological digs, mm -hmm. looking for relics. And in, in much the same way as archaeology is done on Earth, we can do space archaeology. So my hope is decades from now, space archaeology will become a main mainstream frontier where every university will have some space archaeologists in addition to terrestrial archaeologists. That, that's a really fascinating term of space archaeology uh, and, and, and puts a whole different perspective on it, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think the wake-up call came from Oumuamua. We know that our technology has existed only for about a century by now and that we are developing the means for our own destruction. Look at the climate change and 
other risks that we face. And it's not clear that we will survive for many centuries into the future. And so one reason why we are not getting a lot of radio signals from the sky may be that civilizations are short-lived. Those that develop technological abilities do not survive very long. And this is called the Great Filter. The Great Filter means that civilizations are short-lived and therefore you have a relatively small chance of coexisting when they are around. So communicating with them uh, might be an unlikely occurrence. But if you are adopting the approach of space archaeology, you don't care about that because you're looking for relics they left behind. Of course, they would indicate dead civilizations, but you can try and figure out why they died and perhaps avoid a similar fate for ourselves. So it could be a lesson in history for us. It would keep us modest and better equipped for the future. The other thing that could happen is if you find technologies that are far more advanced than ours, you know, we can import them to Earth. If, if we see an unusual object, we can in principle land on it, read off the label made on planet X, so we will know its origin, but also perhaps, you know, copy that technology to Earth. And, you know, it might be a way of shortcutting into our future because uh, it would take us many years to develop the same technology. So there are lots of benefits that I can imagine for humanity from just finding technological relics in space. After the break, looking for more mystery objects like a muamua to find answers. If you like big brains, we think you'll enjoy Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a foreign policy podcast from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Each episode goes beyond the headlines to examine the trends and the ideas that are driving global news and how they'll impact U.S. foreign policy. Listen to Deep Dish to learn what's happening, why it matters, and what you should watch for as the stories unfold. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. Avi Loeb is far from the only scientist asking, are we alone in the universe? The field of astrobiology, for example, searches for signs of life beyond Earth based on signs of biological activity. In the next five years, we'll have the technology to search for alien life in the atmospheres of exoplanets. Loeb, however, is calling for something different. We have to look for additional objects that look as weird as Oumuamua is, because by now it's a million times fainter, so we can't really continue to look at it, but we can find more of the same. You know, when I go to the kitchen and I see an ant, I know that there are many more ants out there. That's why I get alarmed. And we observed the sky only for a few years and found Oumuamua. There should be many more of the same. So in a few years, we'll find more. Where's your confidence that we're going to get other elements or objects to be examining? My confidence stems from the so-called Copernican principle that uh, based on uh, the work of Copernicus who unraveled the fact that we are not we're not at the center of the universe. We're not even at the center of the solar system, not to speak about the center of the galaxy, not to speak about the universe. So this is called the Copernican revolution. And, and there is a, a principle uh, following it that we should never assume that we are at the center of stage, you know, physically or at a privileged time. So if we found Oumuamua 
over a few years of monitoring the sky with pan stars. And we assume the Copernican principle that we weren't living through a privileged time. It means that if we continue to look for a few more years, we'll find another one. And if we use a telescope like the Vera Rubin Observatory that will come online in less than three years, that will be much more sensitive mm. than pan stars, then we might find an object like Oumuamua every month. So as our technology advances, the likelihood of being able to see more objects if we're open to them starts increasing. Oh, yeah. If you, as- if you assume that it's a member of a population of objects on random trajectories, you can estimate how many of them are there. And you find a quadrillion such objects within the solar system right now. So... I would like us to take photographs of every interstellar object that looks as weird as Oumuamua that comes to view in the future. And it shouldn't be too expensive to send those cameras that would take close-up photos. And I really hope that space archaeology will become a major frontier. I don't think anyone would deny uh, the evidence presented by a close-up photo. I mean, you cannot argue that something is a rock when it's not a rock. That's the way for us to proceed rather than say it's always rocks and not take the data. Collecting more data is really one of Loeb's central arguments here. He wants Oumuamua to be our wake-up call to invest more in the search for extraterrestrials. Somehow the scientific community uh, pushed this uh, topic to the periphery, the search for technological signatures of other intelligent or technological civilizations is not really within the mainstream, while other things that are much more speculative, less important for the daily lives of, of people in the public, you know, the detection of gravitational waves or what is the nature of dark matter. These subjects received support or funding at the level of a billion dollars or more, then the search for technological signatures is at least a thousand times less funded. My point is not so much that other radical ideas are being discussed. It's the fact that many of them do not have any contact with experimental data and they will never be be falsified. And of course, the reason that people like them is because they, they never put skin in the game. They can never be proven wrong. You know, if you talk about extra dimensions or about the multiverse and at the moment, there are no experiments that test these ideas. So you can, get, you can demonstrate that you are smart by playing in this sandbox and doing intellectual gymnastics. And uh, at the same time, you're not at the risk of being proven wrong. And that's very convenient. One place Loeb is getting investment is from Silicon Valley. And he happens to be working on a privately funded initiative to develop exactly the kind of exploratory object that he says Muamua appears to be, a light sail. The initiative is called Breakthrough Starshot, a $100 million research and development project that's funded by Israeli-Russian billionaire Yuri Milner and endorsed by Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and the late Stephen Hawking. In May 2015, uh, a black limousine parked in front of the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University and an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, Yuri Milner, came out of it and came to my office, sat on the sofa in front of me and said, would you be willing to lead a project whose goal is to visit the nearest star within my lifetime? Uh, That meant within a couple of decades to get to the nearest star. And I already knew that the nearest star is about four light years away. And so in order to get there in 20 years, you need a spacecraft that moves at a 
at about a fifth of the speed of light. And I said to Yuri, I have to think about it, whether there is any technology that would allow that. And for six months, we discussed it with my students and postdocs and reached the conclusion that the only technology that enables that is the light sail approach, where you use a very powerful laser beam, about 100 gigawatt, shining on a sail that is a gram in weight, roughly the size of a person, pushes it for a few minutes across a distance, five times the distance to the moon, to a fifth of the speed of light. That is feasible in principle. And there are elements of this technology that needs to be developed. And so in uh, April 2016, uh, Stephen Hawking came for the public announcement of this project, Starshot. And we are currently trying to develop the technological ingredients that are necessary to make it a reality. If, if you hadn't been working on Starshot, do you think Oumuamua would have clicked in your mind the way that it, it has? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh, uh, so my imagination, like anyone else's, is uh, limited to what I know or what I experienced. And it's hard to tell, but I wouldn't necessarily regard it as uh, uh, a possible interpretation if I hadn't known that we are developing this same technology right now. And so I, I agree that, you know, my imagination is limited, but, you know, I'm trying to, to take advantage of whatever I know. And obviously, you know, even though for us it's a new technology, for uh, other civilizations that existed a billion years before us, it may have been uh, an old technology. Or it could also, it could also be, uh, as I mentioned in the case of 2020 SO, it's just any object with a thin wall. So it could be, for example, the surface layer that was ripped apart from a spacecraft or, you know, something else. It was clearly not made by humans because it was moving much faster than any rocket that we can launch. And also it passed near the Earth just for a few months. And we know what we were doing at that time. Given that other scscientists have called Loeb's ideas about a muumuu are reckless, I had to ask, what are the consequences if he's wrong? Innovation always involves taking some risks. For example, in the context of the search for the nature of dark matter, you know, we have tried specific examples, weakly interacting massive particles, for example, and we searched for them and didn't find any, so we put limits. Uh, you might ask, is that a waste of effort? I would argue not because, you know, it was a viable idea that we tested experimentally. And that's the way that innovation happens, that very often you go in directions that do not prove to be productive, but every now and then you go in the right direction and that more than pays for the loss that you had in the other directions. And surprisingly, the commercial sector recognizes that and invests in blue sky research because it recognizes that the benefit financially is far greater than the loss. Play this out for me. We've been talking about, you know, alien objects, uh, artifacts, archaeology. I'm sure your mind has gone down the path of taking out and just saying aliens. And where does your mind go when you start thinking about not the objects that are associated, but to the beings themselves, if that's the right word to be using? If we were to meet life from a planet that had no contact with Earth, I think it would be most likely shocking to us. Because when I open recipe books for cakes, 
what I often see is that you can start from the same ingredients and get very different cakes, depending on the way you mix the ingredients and the, the amount of heat that you apply. And it's very likely that other planets had different histories of cooking their soup of chemicals and making life out of it. And as a result, I would think that it would be shocking. There is another reason for that. Most stars are different than the sun. Most of them are smaller and colder and fainter than the sun. They're dwarf stars, and they emit mostly infrared light. So if there are any creatures near them, they have infrared eyes. You know, that may explain why interstellar tourist agencies never advertise Earth as a desired tourist destination, because all we can offer them are green grass vacation sites illuminated by visible light. And that light hurts their eyes, and they're used to dark red grass. Uh, the other possibility is that civilizations far more advanced than we are close themselves in the cocoon. And uh, they don't want to uh, interact with lower-level civilizations because that would degrade their quality of life. You might think that there is no way for us to know about them, but that's not true because according to the second law of thermodynamics, they must deposit some trash. And uh, just like investigative journalists that uh, go through the trash cans of celebrities in Hollywood to learn about their private lives, we can search through the trash they deposit in space and learn about them. What would you find more disconcerting, that there is alien life and we find it, or we actually find there is no alien life? I think if we find that we are not the smartest kid on the block, uh, that would teach us humility. You know, uh, the one thing I learned from the decades uh, during which I practiced astronomy is a sense of modesty. The Earth is one of zeta planets, 10 to the power 21 planets uh, with similar conditions in the observable volume of the universe. And how can we feel proud of doing anything on Earth given this vast space, you know, and also, we live for such a short time, you know. We, we are born into this world like actors to a stage uh, without having a script. We don't know what we are here for. And, you know, the, the work of a scientist is to figure out what the stage is made of and who else is on the stage. Who are the other actors around? That would be interesting to know because it may tell us something about the play that we are supposed to play. We can also ask them, do you have any scripts that you found around? You know, do you, do you know what, you know, how the universe started? What will happen in the future? You know, did you figure out what the dark matter is? You know, we can ask them a lot of questions. It may feel like cheating in an exam, you know, looking over the shoulder of a student next to you to find the answers. But, you know, if we can save ourselves a million or a billion years in the process, it's worth it. But the other thing is, you know, beyond doing science, there is the deep question of, you know, what is the meaning of life? And that's one thing we can ask them. I don't think we will get a good answer. But, you know, for me, the most enjoyable aspect of being alive is trying to figure out what is going on on this stage. You know, we live for such a short portion of the entire play, one part in a hundred million of it, Let's just enjoy the view and try to figure out what's going on rather than fight with each other, try to feel superior relative to other humans. You know, that's instead of doing this rather, you know, uh, 
how should I say, wasteful activity, why, why don't we all come together and try to figure out where we live? You know, what is the bigger picture? You know, it's sort of like getting a sense of the kindergarten of, that we live in rather than staying at home and worrying about each other. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on Big Brains, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Big Brains is a production of the UChicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. The show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap, with assistance from Alyssa Eads. Thanks for listening.